Could I ask you to open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, and you'll find that on page 1075 in the Pew Bible. John 20, 24, page 1075 in the Pew Bible. So this is a, it's a challenging little episode. It uh, makes us uncomfortable with doubt that seems necessary, but it's also encouraging. John chapter 20, uh, verse 24, uh, page 1075. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. And put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miracles, many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's bow together and ask the Lord to be with us. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this opportunity to open the Bible. And we ask you to speak to each heart and to make the truth of Jesus Christ known in a fresh new way, in a deeper way, to call each of us to believing without seeing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So John throws us a lifeline. He he writes as one who is certain. He writes with complete assurance and complete confidence that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, that he has ascended into heaven, that he lives as the life-giving Lord and Master of all. And he writes to us so that we can hear his testimony and grab hold of it and believe. You know, for a lifeline to save someone, it has to be anchored. You know, the first thing you're supposed to do is tie it down. And then you toss it, and you toss it accurately. So it goes near to the person who's struggling in the water and can't help himself. And we find ourselves struggling in a sea of doubt and overcome and not knowing how we can find true meaning and hope and faith in God to live in in this life. We find that John has thrown the lifeline so accurately that Here it has landed right in your lap. 
John's uh, testimony is a lifeline. Because the apostles' testimony is a lifeline, it connects us to our Savior. It connects us to our assurance. It connects us to the Lord Jesus Christ and to heaven. Because it's a lifeline, it should be grabbed. We should take hold of it. We should lay our hands on it and not let go. Thomas doesn't. Doubting brushes aside the lifeline. It ignores the lifeline. It rejects the lifeline. That's what Thomas does. So this story that, we've, that we just read, it starts on the day that Jesus rose. So in the morning, he was raised. The women told the story. And then in the evening, when the disciples were gathered together, for fear of the Jews, they had bolted the door, and they were inside in the room, and suddenly Jesus appeared among them, and he said, peace be with you. That's what Jeremy preached about last week. That's, those are the verses uh, before what I just read. It sounds the same because then the, the next week Jesus does the same thing. Well, when Jesus appeared to them that evening, they did what any of us would do. They went and they told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. He's alive. He has come and he appeared, he appeared to us. So Jesus appeared to them. He showed them his hands and his side. And then he sent them out. He said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So they tell Thomas, they must have told Thomas, you know, oh, it's so exciting. Jesus is sending us out. We're going to go to the whole world. And uh, just as the Father sent him, he's sending us and we're going to go. And, uh, you know, Thomas reacted probably just the way that any of us would have reacted. That's, that's impossible. That doesn't make any sense. It can't be. And, and it's, it's pretty risky. It's pretty scary. You know, to, to follow the path that Jesus followed, that's what I'm being called to do. I'm being called to, to, to follow that same path. I saw where it led for him. You know, I, I don't know what Thomas's uh, reaction was. I don't know what the, the interaction was between them. What was the argument? You know, was Thomas miffed because Jesus appeared to them but not to him? Was Thomas having some philosophical doubts? Was it his religious background that made it impossible for him to believe this? Or is it just the fact that he's trying to get over the reality that Jesus has died. It's all over. And he doesn't want to hear people talking anymore about how he's alive and trying to keep it going. Come on. Let's just deal with it as it is. And he doesn't want his grief to be interrupted with this. I don't know what it was. It doesn't really matter because, uh, you know, John has left that part of it out And it just makes it easier for us in whatever kind of doubt we have to relate to Thomas. Because we certainly understand what it's like to doubt. Um, So what Thomas wanted is he wanted proof. He wanted sensory evidence. He wanted to touch. He wanted to see. He wanted to put his hand into the place. And uh, so this is what he demanded. Uh, Verse 25 So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands 
and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. I think, you know, it's too easy for some of us, uh, even in New England, it's too easy for us, even when there's a lot of unbelief and doubt around, it's easy for us to go along with the crowd and believe because of our friends, because of our family. Maybe we've been doing it for a long time in this church or uh, we've just got kind of a lot of momentum and inertia in our lives and we just keep believing. Thomas is not going to believe just to go along with the crowd. Thomas wants to be sure. And that's a good thing. I, I hope that you don't just go along with the crowd. I hope that you can doubt enough to take seriously the issue and what it means to put your faith in Christ. To stop and think, as Jesus said, count the cost. Maybe, maybe it isn't really worth it. Well, Thomas was always one to face the consequences. And uh, he is the same guy. He was the guy back when, when Jesus was heading down to Jerusalem. And, uh, and that's before he healed Lazarus and raised Lazarus from the dead. And uh, Thomas was the, the one who said, well, let's just go with him and, and die with him there. He's just ready to face the consequences. It wasn't that he lacked commitment. It wasn't that he lacked a loyalty to Jesus Christ. It's just that he lacked proof. He didn't see how it could possibly happen. Well, doubt is common. In a way, doubt is really easy, and that's why it's so common. It was common in Israel's history. It was common in Israel's background. Um, Jeremy read uh, from 2 Kings chapter 7 the story of Samaria and how they couldn't believe that God was going to intervene and fulfill his covenant promises to his people and rescue them, even though they've been so sinful and disloyal. They couldn't believe that God would intervene. And uh, boy, was it amazing when he did. Uh, but the word of the prophet was not enough. I love the, you know, the classic story of unbelief in the Old Testament. It's Gideon. So the, the Midianites have come in droves, in hordes, thick as locusts over the whole land of Israel. And they're just occupying everything and eating everybody's food. And Gideon is there hiding. Uh, Judges chapter 6. And, um, and the Lord assures him that he's going to use Gideon to free Israel. And uh, Gideon wants to wants more assurance and more assurance and more assurance. So at one point he, he says, oh, let me do this test. Let me just put out this, this fleece out in the ground at night and let, make it so that all the dew falls on the fleece and no dew falls on any of the other ground and all the other ground will be dry and the fleece will be wet. And sure enough, God does it. It's amazing. God is so patient. But then he says, no, I, I, one more test. Please don't, don't get tired of me, Lord, but one more test. Now, now this time make it so that all the ground is wet but the fleece is dry and God does it. So, you know, God is so patient. God is so patient. Um, God shows his patience with doubt with Moses. Moses, uh, you know, he's called by God when God appears in the burning bush. And so Moses goes over to see, what is this sight? This bush is burning. It's on fire, but it's not burned up. And uh, he comes there and God says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. I have come. 
I have come to fulfill my promises, to rescue my people Israel, to bring them up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm going to give them the land that I promised to their forefathers. And, uh, you know, Moses uh, says, wow, that's really, that's really exciting. You know, he's, he's all excited about it, but he says, now I'm sending you to go. And all of a sudden, Moses begins with this string of excuses. The first is, who am I? Who am I to go and, and bring the people out of Egypt? And God says, I will be with you. And then Moses says, well, what, what if uh, they ask your name? What is his name? And so God tells him, my name is I am who I am. And then God gives him more information about what the plan is and how he's going to go. And Pharaoh's going to say no. And there are going to be signs and wonders and, and uh, a lot of difficulties. And finally, God is going to bring the people out of Egypt. And, um, you know, then Moses says, um, you mean I'm supposed to go to the people of Israel and tell them this? What if they don't believe? And so God gives him signs to show to the people of Israel so that they will believe. And then Moses says, yeah, but you know, I've never been a good speaker. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And so God's, you know, it's like, look, are you, are you going to tell me about who you are? Like, I don't know. You know, who, who invented the tongue and who gave you yours? You know, I know you, Moses, and you're going to go. And uh, so Moses still has one, one card left. He just plays it. Oh, please send someone else. You know, we, I, I just love to read these stories of people in the Old Testament who doubt. Because it, it encourages me that God can deal with people who doubt. And, you know, with people like me who just keep, you know, falling short of a real faith. But doubting can try God's patience. I mean, just imagine trying to deal with a guy like this, Moses. You know, you tell him one thing or another and it's always going the wrong direction. You know, I can't speak well. And, and so it says that the Lord's anger burned against Moses. But he said, your brother Aaron is on his way, and the two of you will go, now go! So, yeah, God was patient with Moses, and he sent him. We mustn't try God with a lot of doubt. But we find ourselves doubting. Doubting was common in Israel's past, and doubting was going to be common in the days ahead. This, this episode between the disciples and Thomas was great prep for them all to see what it was going to be like to stand up and tell people that Jesus has been raised from the dead and see what kind of reaction it gets and to come face to face with the doubt. So... Uh, the, the disciples, they go out, they preach in Jerusalem that Jesus had been raised from the dead, that he is now the Lord, that he is the Messiah, that he is the King. And they're jailed, they're warned, and they're whipped. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't easy. I love a story of doubt in the book of Acts, of just toying with the lifeline. If you'd flip over to the next, keep your finger there in Acts, in John 20, and flip over to the next book, Acts, and go to chapter 24. It's uh, page 1106. Acts 24, 24. And uh, here's a story of someone just toying with, with the lifeline, just, just playing with doubt, and uh, not getting serious about the testimony 
that God has provided. And so it's the governor, the new governor of the province. His name is Felix, Governor Felix. Now he has tried Paul. Paul has been brought before him with accusations of you know, sedition and this sort of thing. And uh, so Felix hears the, the hearing and he says, I'll make a decision within the next few days. So verse 24 and on, we find out actually it took him two years and he never made a decision. It's indecision. So verse 24, several days later, Felix came with his, li- his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. For two years, he played with the lifeline. He wouldn't get serious. He wouldn't commit. He wouldn't really open his heart and, and receive the word that was given to him. And... Uh, we, we shouldn't just play with God's word. We need to be serious. We need to close. We need to believe. But Thomas isn't going to do that. He, is, uh, he has heard the testimony, and uh, he's rejected it. The lifeline has been tossed to him. He's ignored it. He's brushed it aside. And so Thomas's situation is fatal. And so when someone's drowning, uh, when they can't grab for a lifeline, you know, they're just too far gone, then what you have to do is you have to get out there. You have to use what they call the, uh, the rescue board. It's like a, like a modified surfboard. You paddle your way out there. You get to the person. You grab hold of them, and you take them back to the, to the land. And so Jesus comes and gives Thomas proof. And he settles the issue for Thomas so that Thomas can't doubt He's compelled to believe. And uh, so, wow, wouldn't it be great if Jesus would do that for you and me? I mean, wouldn't this be a great church if, uh, if Jesus did that for us? Uh, proof sets aside the lifeline. It uh, you know, brings out the rescue board. And so Jesus' proof compels faith. Um, so look what, what, uh, what Jesus does. He, he appears and he gives Thomas the kind of sensory proof that Thomas wanted. Thomas wanted to see. He gets to see Jesus there. He gets to hear his voice. And there's the impression that's made upon him because he knows he has seen the bolt on the door. And he knows that doors like that can't be opened from the outside. And uh, then Jesus asks him to touch. So I don't know if he touches or not. You can decide that yourself. In, in the Gospel of Luke, it says that they touched him. But uh, he says, I, I don't know if they touched him or not. Um, but there was the sensory evidence. But there's also another kind of evidence which compels Thomas. Not just the sensory evidence, but there's a kind of a personal evidence There's something about who this is who has come 
that just drives the point home that Jesus is alive and Jesus is Lord. Look, he comes through locked doors uh, without knocking. He knows Thomas's thoughts. He knows what Thomas was saying last week. He remembers. He hears what Thomas is saying when he's not absent. So he's present when he's away. And he remembers and he confronts, just like Jesus always would do. He reproves and he confronts and he insists on an obedience and a faith in the truth. Oh, this drives it home to Thomas's heart that Jesus is here and he's alive. So, so Thomas is, uh, is compelled to believe. Look at the, the words Jesus says. You know, he, he, he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. He just reads Thomas his words right back to him. Uh, reach out your hand, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. There's, there's the compulsion to believe. He's just telling him, believe, stop doubting and believe. This um, is not a hallucination. People don't have hallucinations of things that are totally unexpected. But, uh, and, and just totally contrary to what, what they can expect or what they can believe or what they, they can encounter. Things that are completely unknown. But even if they do, they don't have group hallucinations. So Thomas hallucinating that, Tom, uh, that, that, uh, that Jesus is there, and John hallucinating that Thomas is hallucinating that Jesus is there, and the whole, all this group hallucination going on, it doesn't happen. So it's not, it's not a hallucination. He saw it, he insisted he had to see it and have the sensory tangible evidence, and then he would be able to believe, and he got it. And he believed, and he was convinced And you know what? That's the only explanation for the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. Because how else could Jews in the first century come up with this idea that a man had been not just resuscitated from death and sort of brought back to, you know, this kind of temporary mortal life again, but resurrected into a new kind of life, a new kind of being. This is the end of the world in Jewish thinking. The resurrection takes place at the end of the world. I know that, yes, the dead will rise at the end, when the end comes. But what is this about one person rising from the dead, walking through doors, being present when he is absent, this is, not, uh, this is not within the realm of first century Jewish thinking. Um, so the only explanation really must be that these people who, who, who invented this new doctrine so soon, right after Jesus lived and died, it must be because they were completely convinced by sensory evidence. And that's what they say convinced them. Um, so there's also something else that's very hard to explain. 
historically. First, it's hard to explain historically how the doctrine, the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of Christ could have arisen so soon after Jesus lived and died. The second thing is how a group of Jews could come to believe and proclaim convincingly that a man was God. You know, in the pagan uh, Roman religions and all the religions of the world they, and the Greek religions, they're all the, the, the stories and the occasions when they believed that a God would come in human form. So there was all that. That's all the blasphemous religions of all those other nations. But the Jews denied all of it. They insisted that there is one true God, and he is not in the form of a man, but Jesus came and said, I and the Father are one. And uh, so for Thomas, uh, you know, he heard this again and again and uh, during Jesus' life, but he was never going to believe really that easily. You know, uh, this, this whole subject of, of the, the historical the historical background of the resurrection and some of the historical arguments. A great uh, chapter in this book by Tim Keller. I really recommend it. It's called The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And uh, he, he just goes through a number of arguments that people have for why they can't believe in, in God or why they can't believe in Christianity, why Christianity isn't even to be considered. And sort of goes through all those doubts one at a time and uh, deals with them. And then he embarks the rest of the book uh, going through the message of the gospel and examining one piece at a time. And his, his chapter on the resurrection is, is really good. Um, and it talks about, that's where I got that, uh, that whole argument about the, the historical background of the resurrection. Um, if you are our visitor today, I tell you what, I have a gift for you. If you are our visitor today and you have questions and doubts and you would like to examine the truth of these things, I have a couple of copies of this book left over from a class that I taught. And they're back at the welcome table and uh, the welcome desk. And I'd love to uh, give you one after the service. So, Tom, so Thomas, um, he, he sees Jesus here. He sees that Jesus has come into the room. He sees the, the impressing evidence that Jesus is offering. And uh, Jesus is standing there saying, Believe, believe, and do not doubt. And you know, all the things that Jesus has been teaching to Thomas over the years, they're, they're, they must be going through his mind right now. And he's saying, Jesus really is uh, one with the Father. Jesus really is the one who came from the Father, the one who makes the Father known. Whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father, just as he kept saying again and again. And so Thomas finally gives in. He finally gives up and he says, my Lord and my God. He confesses him as God. God come in the flesh. So Thomas goes from zero to 60 and nothing flat. He's completely convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord. His doubt is overcome and he is compelled to believe. So Christianity arose because Christ arose. All the disciples doubted. 
you know, they all, at least they all doubted the women when they came and presented their testimony. All the disciples faced proof. They faced Jesus raised from the dead and present with them. And all the disciples testified out of their confidence and assurance that Jesus is truly alive. And here we are at the other end, far, far away, and we don't see any such evidence that Jesus is alive. In fact, the evidence that is there has gotten more and more remote as the years and the centuries have passed. How can we believe without proof? All we have is a lifeline. So belief grasps the lifeline, takes hold of it. Thomas has taken up his place together with John and the others at the other end of the lifeline. And Thomas has what we can't have. Thomas has proof. And we don't get it. Thomas got to see the Lord. We don't. And the amazing thing is that Thomas says, we, uh, I'm sorry, the amazing thing is that Jesus says, we are more blessed than Thomas. Verse 29. Um, Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's more blessed for us to believe than it was for Thomas. And we kind of feel like Thomas really got the the blessing because he was there and he got to see Jesus. If only we could have seen him. I mean, that would be so great. Just imagine what that would do in our lives. But Jesus says, no, we have the greater blessing because we didn't see. And I think it's like a field goal in basketball. Because, you know, know, if if you're right under the net and you shoot the basket, you get two points, right? But if you're way out there beyond the line and you shoot the basket, you get an extra point. There's extra points for, for distance. And uh, I think that's the way that faith works. The less you have to go on, the better. The better it is for honoring God. You know, the less you have of proof and of evidence and of, and of the power and of, wor- of God's word, and the less you have of all the truth that he has revealed... If you can believe with that little bit, there's, uh, there's even a greater blessing. No, it doesn't mean you should try to go with little. Try to get more. You don't have much. You don't have much. Don't worry. You won't, uh, you won't lose points. But um, the less you have to go on, the better. Because you show that God's word is so good. You, you taste and you see that the Lord is good. You only have that little tiny taste. All you have is just... Uh, just the, 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 the Bible passed down through generations. All you have is just the, the, the view of the Holy Spirit working in someone's life, and you see the change that Christ is making in a loved one, in a family member, in a friend, a co-worker. And uh, you sense the, the move of the Holy Spirit in the congregation gathered. That's all you have. And you come to faith. And uh, it's amazing. It shows that God's Word is truly sweet, that it's truly attractive, that it's truly powerful, that the Holy Spirit is really alive, that God's grace 
is wonderful and amazing. That the blood of Christ is so powerful that it continues and continues to cleanse and to save and regenerate for generations and generations. And God is honored and glorified when you have so little and yet you believe. I love uh, the story of Job in the Old Testament. Job, he had, he had everything. He had everything to go on. He didn't even, it seems like he didn't even really need to have faith. You know, because uh, Job was the most upright man in all the land. And so naturally, because he was the most upright man in all the land, God blessed him more than all the other people. So Job was extremely wealthy. His family was doing very well. He had everything that he could ask. And uh, that's how it ought to be, isn't it? But the devil came, Satan came, and made a suggestion. He said, you know, the only reason Job loves you is because of all the stuff. If you take the stuff away, he'll curse you to your face. You know, nobody really loves God. Let's be realistic. And so begins the book of Job and all the tests of Job. God takes everything away. And Job then has nothing to go on. Everything is taken away. And he says, the Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even though he slay me, still I will trust him. I know that my Redeemer Redeemer lives, and at the last I will see him. I and not not another. So he, he holds on to his confidence and his belief, and so he glorifies God. Job honored God when he had nothing to go on. It's like Abraham. Abraham is a great, great man of faith in the Old Testament. So God gives Abraham, finally, after waiting and waiting, God gives him a son, Ishmael, the son of the maidservant, the son of the bond slave. And uh, so Abraham is so happy. God has fulfilled his promise. He finally has a son. And then God says to Abraham, you're going to have a son. What? Yeah, you're going to have a son. In about a year, your wife Sarah will have a son. So Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, and Sarah's womb was also dead, Romans chapter 4, and he believed God. There was nothing to go on, nothing to sustain this faith except God's character, God's faithfulness, God's truth, God's testimony about himself. He says, I'll do it. And he'll do it. Um, Hebrews 11.1. 1. What is faith? Faith is being sure of what we hope for. Certain of what we do not see. My, uh, uh, a, a favorite uh, story of believing with nothing to go on is in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 8. Would you turn there with me? Just keep your finger in John 20. And go back to Matthew 8, page 962 in the Pew Bible, Matthew 8, 5. It's the story of the centurion, the Roman uh, soldier, uh, maybe like a a lieutenant in our army. And um, Jesus has just been teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he's healed someone of leprosy, and then he meets this centurion. So Matthew 8, page 962. And um, Matthew tells us that when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, 
My servant lies at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Just imagine, this guy's a centurion, okay? He's, he's no Jew. He's, he's a big, important guy in the army. And, uh, and uh, he's probably Roman, you know, raised on all the Roman gods, or at least he's from some other nation, you know, recruited as a soldier, and he's, he's buying, you know, trying to get into to, uh, you know, good, a good standing in Rome, which is where all the power is. So he's, he's kind of an important guy. And the lowest of the low on the totem pole are these Jewish peasants like Jesus. You know, these Jews who have their stubborn religion, they're, they're way down there. And, um, but this guy, he's really impressed with Jesus and he wants to come and ask a favor. So, well, that's really great. That's exciting. So he comes and he asks, and he says, My servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. And Jesus says, I will go and heal him. What wonderful compassion. But the centurion, uh, you know, blows my gasket. He says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. I don't need so much to go on. If you'll just say the word, I will trust what you say. And so Jesus says, you know, I I haven't encountered such great faith in all of Israel. There's nobody else I've seen who has faith like this. So little to go on. And he trusts the word of Christ. Um, Some of us have wonderful supports for faith. We have a family who encourage us and who back us up who set a good example, who teach us. Some of us, you know, we're blessed with a clear mind and a calm heart. Um, some of us, we're, we have a growing understanding of the Bible. We get time to read it, and we find it fruitful, and, and we find God's voice speaking to us as we read the Bible, and it bolsters and encourages our faith. We have... Um, some of us, a, a string of answered prayers. And the encouragement just of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and, and assuring us and renewing us and filling us with love. And some of us have seen one after another of these supports pulled away. And um, just keep on believing not just out of sheer inertia, but there's something in us that we can't let go of Christ and his word. It's true. It's real. You have the words of eternal life. Where else should we go? So, some of us are like those, those houses that we saw in the news during the, the blizzards and the, the hurricane. You know, the, the, uh, the, the shore erosion, the beach erosion continues on, and then these houses, the, the land gets eaten up until it's eating up underneath the house. I saw one in the news. It was like 20 feet underneath the house, completely evacuated of all soil. And there was just like a four-by-four four in one corner of the house that was holding it up. Some of us feel like that house. You know, our faith has continued to be undermined, and there's another storm that's coming. And you know what? Maybe all of it will be undermined. But somehow God sustains the faith of his people. And they keep holding on. Maybe it doesn't quite feel like it it should work. But 
It works. You just hold on to that lifeline of the testimony of the apostles, and you're connected, and then God keeps working in your life. It seems that we have less and less to go on today. We wonder how, how kids can uh, grow up in the kind of world that they're growing up in and come to a faith in Christ and hold on to a faith in Christ. We wonder, um, is there any point really in, in sending and in planting churches and sending out workers into the harvest? Is it really realistic? Um, we wonder if it's worthwhile trying to speak up in our society to try to make a change to things. The, the drift is going the way it is, and, and what's the point of trying? What difference can it possibly make? It's easy to lose heart and give up. But we glorify God when we, uh, when we believe when there's so little to go on. You know, they don't give out the Medal of Honor to soldiers who follow orders that are being shouted in their ear by their commanding officer who's standing there. They give the Medal of Honor for, uh, for bravery and heroism above and beyond the call of duty because there's something in the heart of a soldier that drives him or her to go and do something extraordinary for the cause of their country. And there is a blessing for the one who believes when it's so hard, when faith is tested and it seems impossible. So, John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. John turns to you. This is what he says. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I've seen it. I saw it all. I saw way more that I didn't even put in the book. I'm dead sure. You can't see it, but I did. And I'm giving you my testimony. Here's the lifeline. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the disciples you chose. Thank you for your patience with them, for your patience with us. Thank you for the many, many amazing ways you have to call forth faith from the hearts of your people and for the amazing blessing it is to believe in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. Amen.